Welcome to episode one of the Bully Pew podcast. This is your host, David Morrill, who uh, you're probably familiar with my voice, I guess, if you listen to um, Protesting Tonight or Polemics Report before that. This is a little bit of a, a different format where it will be audio only, no video accompanying this podcast, and we're going to talk a little bit more off the cuff. And I know some of you are probably saying, dude, you already talk off the cuff. You already uh, just sort of rant about things from time to time. Um, yeah, that that will happen. But as, as we move protesting tonight towards being more of a um, more of an organized, topical kind of a thing and, and whatnot, um, this will be this will serve as is hopefully an opportunity to have some more candid conversations about um, specific topics that uh, affect us as Christian men um, and most specifically as Christian men who are not vocational ministers, as Christian men who are um, not pastors, who are um, laymen, who are sitting in the pew, as the title would indicate. Um, before we get into uh, what's, on, what's on my heart <laughs> for, for this podcast, I wanted to explain a little bit about the title, The Bully Pew. Um, it is not bully in the um, sense of bullying somebody or uh, pushing our way or something. It's actually a play on words, and it's a play on it's a play on the phrase or the term the bully pulpit. Some of you may heard that have heard that term used to refer to, especially the president of the United States, um, access to basically stand up and say whatever he wants to say to the world at any time he wants to say it. The term the bully pew was coined, as far as I understand, was coined by Teddy Roosevelt. And using the the version of bully or the, the, the interpretation of that word that was used at the time, that something is bully if it's if it's good, if it's wonderful, if it's um, if it's if it's praiseworthy. And so Teddy Roosevelt was saying, Hey look, the the bully the bully pulpit is this wonderful access that the president has. Um, to get messages out there to people any time he wants. He has act, direct access to uh, the people because whatever he says will be publicized. And so that's the, that's the meaning of the, the term the bully pulpit. In this case, the bully pew and its play on words is my um, kind of homage to that with the idea that um, now in the information age, we all have direct access to those who are willing to listen to us. Um, it's not a lot different than the way the President of the United States might have direct access to everybody. And granted, um, probably more people will listen to him than will listen to me, although that's debatable with our current President, if people are actually listening or, or not. Um, and so this, this podcast, The Bully Pew, is the idea that even regular pew-sitting believers, especially men, have ministerial responsibilities and we have um, issues that we uh, are working through and, and work that we need to do and roles that Scripture lays out for us that are unique to us as men. Um, and, and then, frankly, a lot of roles that are set out for us that are not particularly unique to us as men, um, but that being, being men um, affects how we are able to carry out those roles, um, even things that all believers would be responsible to do as we, as, as we um, attempt to be obedient and accomplish those as men, that may, there may be some different implications for, for how that goes. 
Now, the the topic for this podcast, and this is this is basically going to be um, less than an hour. Uh, this is this is not going to be a long format thing, so I'm I'm thinking probably in the realm of uh, 40 to 50 minutes, but um, that'll change, you know, depending on how how long how long I want to talk about it. If you're listening closely, you might realize from time to time what I'm doing or where I am while this is being recorded. At the, at, right now, I'm driving around in the car. Had dr- I've just dropped the boys off, our our two sons off at school, um, at the the new school that they're going to, and with um, the the very real knowledge that although they're going to school and they're going to a Christian school at this point, um, and a Christian school that that I generally trust, although they might be a little too, uh, um, you know, a little a little a, a little too soft on some of the doctrines that I think are important, but you know, they're 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 not teaching heresy or something like that. They're just not digging into the <laughs> the same doctrinal depth that we tend to dig into at Protestia. Um, but that's okay. The the important part, I think, is that they're getting a, um, a a general education across the board as far as subject matter, but from a Christian perspective. They don't have to worry about transgender indoctrination. They don't have to worry about um, uh, radical feminism and these kinds of things entering their curriculum. Yet, I'm still going to be paying attention to what they're learning. I'm still going to be paying paying attention to what is going on because, as we know, labeling something Christian. Um, is no guarantee that it will actually be Christian, that it will actually be biblical. And so I, I believe that the school encourages that. It encourages parents to be involved. It encourages parents to um, be asking what is being taught. And with the idea that in the end, the parents, um, the father and, and mother, are the primary educators of the children, not the school. The school is... Um, a, a a tool and a um, something that we you know we're paying for um, to to basically partner with and to help educate them. But in the end, um, what they learn or don't learn or what's accepted by them or not um, is my responsibility. The buck stops with me. Um, even though their mother is, I would argue, the primary caretaker of the children, um, the the um, the beliefs that move forward in my household. The, what what the the boys um, wind up accepting as true, or or at least behaving in accordance with, you know, as much as we can change their hearts, um, we certainly are in a position to change their behavior. But that that buck stops with me. Uh, you know, I'm the I'm their dad, and um, certainly for young men coming into adolescence, that's a that's a, a big responsibility for all men. Um, it's the reason that that boys need fathers, even in. Um, non-christian households the presence of fathers you know the two parents um husband and wife household um bears dividends for society and for the young men like i said even non even even unbelieving families benefit by um following um the created order they benefit from um the benefits of doing things god's way more so, obviously, in a Christian household where we unashamedly teach and proclaim the gospel. Um, anyway, I got sidetracked there a little bit. The, the topic that um, was on my heart is this idea that, as, as we all know, if anybody's been following the evangelical conversation for any amount of time, um, we can kind of pick, pick up on um, the day-to-day like current things. Like if you follow Christian social media, um, and sometimes I would say Christian in scare quotes social media, 
But if you follow that, you'll see sort of micro trends, you know. So for hell, three days, everybody's talking about this doctrine over here. And then uh, for, you know, the next three days, everybody seems to be talking about this over here. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's brought about by an actual event or something. And very often it's brought about because um, somebody who has influence or somebody that people listen to says something related to this doctrine that is disagreeable to people. They disagree with it. And so all of a sudden that becomes the, the flashpoint of the conversation. Um, and, then, and then we would have what we would call, uh, I guess I would call macro trends. Where these are like long-standing issues, long-standing, um, broad uh, waves of movement within um, theological circles within the Christian conversation. So, as as an example, you might say a micro trend as well. Such, such and such pastor said something here that indicates that uh, he he may not have a properly formed view of the Trinity. He might not have a biblical view of the Trinity. And so now all of a sudden we're talking about Trinitarian doctrine for a few days. And that becomes the nature of the conversation. And people, by and large, they dutifully line up on their sides of the ideological fence. And, of course, if they, if they uh, are particularly, um, I, would say, I, I would say if they're particularly untrustworthy, they may use every single one of these opportunities as a chance to push their... their um, their pet doctrine, their boutique doctrine, whatever doctrine um, on which they plant their flag. So we might be talking about the Trinity, and you'll find um, some sort of an egalitarian feminist try to make claims about the Trinity that support their egalitarian feminism, despite the fact that we're, we're we thought we were talking about what what does the Bible teach about the Trinity? You know, what is the truth about the nature of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Um, and this happens all the time, obviously. People, people will dodge the subject um, when they want to either talk about some other false doctrine or, honestly, sometimes it's to distract because they don't actually believe the orthodox doctrine. And so they, they can't actually have a conversation about it on its own terms. We see this a lot. Um, and that's with these, you know, what I, what I would call micro-trends where, hey, we, we're talking about such and such for three or four days before everybody moves on to something else. Um, Beyond that, uh, with macro trends, you know, macro ideological trends, we're in theological trends, we're talking about things, overarching things. Like, I mean, egalitarianism is a macro trend. That is a long-standing um, point of contention, and really one of the most easily, um, one of the most, one of the easiest markers to use to um, figure out what um, ideological camp somebody is in or their theological camp. Um, so you want to find out if somebody is an actual orthodox believer. One of one of the the um, the easy ways to test for that is to figure out what they believe about the the authority of Scripture. And sometimes it's you know the the, the their version or their view of the authority of Scripture isn't fully formed. Sometimes it's hey you know I I believe that uh, um, in biblical gender roles because the Bible says so, and that's about as far as they've gotten. But at least that's true. At least that's true. And then there are others that will, will take it one step further and, and say, I believe in biblical gender roles, because, not only because that's what God word, God's word teaches, but I can also talk about why, why this is evident from other sources of, of, of truth. Um, you know, I believe that, that scripture is inerrant. I believe it's sufficient, but I don't believe it's the only source of truth. God does reveal truth in other places. And, you know, uncoincidentally his word you know the scripture actually talks about this that there are there are god's true true things that are revealed 
um, outside of Holy Scripture, outside of the Word of God itself, the written Word, um, that even pagans can figure out, you know. And this is, this is part of the reason that we believe that everybody will be held accountable for their response to God and their response to the, um, the offer of salvation. Part of the reason we believe that that's true is because God's truths are revealed um, even, even to the spiritually blind. Even the spiritually blind understand the things of, you know, can figure out the things of nature, can figure out, um, if they're honest with themselves, that there's a creator that there's an order, that there's a reason for all of this. They can figure out that there are differences between men and women that are purposeful decisions uh, that matter, that actually affect things. They're not just um, they're, they're, they're not just uh, societal categories, that they're actual natural categories and that they're natural categories for a reason. Um, and so, so these, these theological camps, they tend to um, they, they tend to wind up being binary. Binary because every choice is binary. So you'll hear, and you'll hear people lament about this. They'll lament about this in, in, in politics. Why are there only two candidates? Why are there only two parties, you know, and whatnot? And, and, and there's a very simple reason for that. That reflects the, the nature of decisions. Um, every single decision or group of decisions or conclusion you come to um, is a result of multiple binary decisions that you have made. Multiple times during a process of figuring something out, you decide to yourself, I believe A or I believe B. Um, you know, even, even the, re- like if you have 10 options and you say, well, I'm now I'm only considering eight of those options. I've, I've discarded option one and two. I'm only going to, I'm only going to consider, um, eight out of the ten options. That's still a result of several binary decisions. At some point, you said, "I'm going to reject option one," you know, and you had to make the choice: I'm going to reject option one, or I'm not going to reject option one. I'm going to reject it. Okay, binary choice. Now I'm going to decide whether I'm going to reject or con- continue to consider option two, and you make a binary choice to reject um, reject option two. So it, it, at the end of every chain of decisions, every every process of figuring something out. Um, which is in and of itself a a long list of binary decisions, whether you realize that's what you're doing or not. Um, that same dynamic plays out in um, decisions about what you believe politically or what you believe theologically. Um, I mean, take a take a complicated you know take a doctrine where you might argue, hey, there's there's um, you know eight versions of this in Christendom, eight eight different takes on this. Uh, in in Christendom, um, and while you're while you're looking at those eight takes, and you've decided at the end, well, I believe that this is the right version. This is what this actually is. Um, you have, by process of elimination, made binary decisions about every other um, every other option. You know, so when I say I believe that salvation is by faith alone, I have, by binary choice, rejected salvation of works or some sort of synergy between faith and works. You know, each one of those I've said yes or no, I've said no. And I've said yes to one of those. Again, a binary decision. So in the case of something like politics, and people say, well, why aren't there three or four parties to choose from? Why do I just have these two? It's because people have rightly realized that um, they're, because you have to have a majority, there's only one office, right? There's only, there's only one office that this, these candidates are running for. 
and and they and people realize that in order for our candidate to win that office, the better choice is for us to align with those that are close to us ideologically, those those that have are close to us politically. Even if we don't agree on everything, let's pool our resources and we'll all get some of what we want versus losing the election and getting none of what we want. And that happens consistently. It's why I tell people, um, don't vote third party. Voting third, voting for a candidate that you know has no no chance of winning is just giving, mathematically speaking and practically speaking, you're just giving half a vote to the other candidates that can actually that actually have a chance of winning. The question you have to ask yourself is, you know, is pragmatic in politics? Would you rather get a little bit of what you want, push the ball a little bit the right direction, or? Um, you know, throw your vote away and risk give half of your vote to the candidate that's going to push the ball the wrong direction. You know, you'd be surprised how hard this is to help people understand. And it's the reason why a lot of political analysts that I respect would, would argue, hey, we're doing this is um, we're, we're going to uh, uh, focus on party over person. The party will, you know, the, the party platform is important for that reason, because it tells you what, you know, it tells you where the person that you don't know is likely to end up and what they're likely to do. Um, and party politics run the show in Washington, D.C. They run the show in, in local, um, local governments, state governments as well. And so you can vote for third-party so-and-so, um, and then the, the, the person that you least liked to win wins. And you know, a, a good example uh, in, in modern politics, if you cast a vote for, let's just say you have a Democrat that's running in your area, and they are... Um, they're pro-life and you really believe they're pro-life and they're low taxes. You really believe they're low taxes. This Democrat that, uh, um, apparently agrees with you on a lot of things. And the Republican is a rude jerk. The Republican, you feel like, Hey, you know, I don't think this guy's got a lot of character. He might be saying most of the right things, but you know, I really like the Democrat better. And they seem like they, they agree with me on all these issues. When that Democrat gets a DC, um, they are 95% uh, likely to be a vote for Nancy Pelosi. So, yeah, you voted for pro-life bill, but you got Nancy Pelosi. That's just how it happens with party politics. So, um, anyway, I, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit except to say that uh, this is the this binary nature of decision-making and, and the truth that I think everybody just accepts whether they want to admit it or not and that at the end of every discussion there's one, one truth that's true about that issue and a bunch of um, false versions um, as well. We end up being split into, into kind of um, theological camps, and so these these macro issues like egalitarianism can really point us to um, where somebody probably most likely lies on a bunch of other issues. You know, it's not a coincidence that those who who openly promote or um, even promote a soft version of egalitarianism wind up on the the left of the spectrum on a lot of other issues. They wind up on the left of the spectrum as far as um, biblical authority. They wind up on the left side of the spectrum um, when it comes to uh, issues about life or, um, you know, economics or whatever. It's it's not a coincidence that the whole group of, um, you know, quote-unquote Christians, because, you know, I would make an argument many of them are not, but that all of these supposed Christians that are egalitarian and find no problem with women teaching men in the gathered assembly, no matter what the Bible says about that, um, are also the same ones that were um, jumping on board when Joe Biden started suggesting that we um, bail out student loan um, borrowers. And, and you know, they, they went clamoring 
clamoring uh, along about student loan forgiveness and not not even accepting the idea that there's no free money out there. If you're quote-unquote forgiving student loans, that money's got to come from somewhere coming from the taxpayer. So basically you're saying everybody's got to pay for, um, you know, Brenda's gender studies degree, you know, or, or you know, Lance's um, degree in, you know, trombone performance or something, you know, whatever it is. He's, he's in debt. It somehow wasn't his fault. Like he didn't know what he was doing. And so we're going to put that burden on to everybody else, including, of course, the vast majority of people that were responsible and, and were, were smart enough and responsible enough to not get themselves buried in debt. The, the people that are supporting this idea and, and claiming it's Christian are the same people that have no problem with women preaching. They're the same people that um, have no problem with the concept of a quote-unquote gay Christian or a transgender Christian. There's a commonality here. There's a, tri- there's a tribalism, and it really does have a theological underpinning. It's not just, I mean, yeah, there are certain people that will go wherever, wherever they feel um, uh, you know, accepted or where, wherever they feel heard or wherever they can feel platformed. I mean, we, we talked about that um, in you know, when I was talking about platform grifting, there are some people that will change their, their supposed principles at the drop of a hat, um, depending on whoever pays them, basically. And sometimes that's pay them by money, but often it's pay them by attention and accolades and, and um, supposed respect or whatever. You know, that kind of thing. That, that's why I call it platform grifting, because platform can encompass a whole bunch of things for somebody. It can encompass somebody's... Um, reputation that can en- encompass their, you know, the feeling that they've been taken seriously. Uh, it can encompass money. It can encompass positions in institutions and whatnot. Um, all of those things would build somebody's uh, platform as far as their public, their public persona and their public existence, especially online. Um, platform wraps all of that together. And basically, I'm making the claim that there are people out there that really, I mean, they're really kind of inconsequential but they will engage in this behavior and they um, because the internet gives them direct access to people with actual platforms or people that are actually respected people that um, have actual um, you know accomplishments or or a good history of of, you know faithful ministry and proclamation of of the truth um, because the internet gives these people direct access to those people um, it can it can become a pretty big annoyance it can become pretty pretty obnoxious to see people kind of come out of nowhere. And and the worst part is if if you have a platform grifter whose platform then you have, um, you know they they've lost that platform uh, be, because they've they've aired and they've lost the respect of people listening or reading or whatever. The internet is is um, infinite, so they can they can basically lay low for a little while and then show up somewhere else, and and a whole bunch of people that don't know what happened the first time. Um, because we we tend to want to be trusting, it's more comfortable to be trusting. They just they they jump right back in. So this this grifter can basically burn every bridge they have in, on their present platform, um, whether on purpose or on accident, and run somewhere else and start a new platform. Or sometimes just simply lay low and then come back out of hiding, and there will be people there that are unaware of what happened before, um, or you say something that they like, so they're unwilling to listen. They're unwilling to put those things together. Um, 
you know, a good example of this, and I and I hate to even bring it up, but because I I suspect that at least at first there won't be a lot of listeners to the uh, Bully Pew podcast, but a good example of this is uh, um, Joshua Chavez or Service Christie, as he likes to call himself, or as we we like to call him Servetus Diablos. <laughs> you know, it's a it's kind of kind of a double or triple entendre, but basically this this guy he he do, he's not a member of a church. Um, he he tears down. Um, imperfect but reputable public ministers all the time, um, and and attacks attacks the church as an institution as if there is no church that's good enough for him and his theology. Um, he, he's constantly pointing out what he thinks are other people's sins, and not not doctrinal sins, not saying so and so is teaching something badly over here, but it's like hey they they showed up at a conference with so and so, or they took a picture with so and so, or why are they not rebuking this person? I think that they should rebuke. And he cast them out. And the problem was for him is he had his own skeletons. He had his own issues. And and one of those issues, of course, was that he he imported um, a woman, a young woman from South Africa, who they had apparently had begun an online relationship, and um, had had I guess romantic over the internet. I don't know. He brings her into you know Arizona or New Mexico, wherever he's living or something. Um, marries her in a secret ceremony. And uh, it was it was conducted by I want to say like his dad or, or somebody like that, and his ministry partner at the time, Jacob Prash, was aware of this and apparently attending quote unquote over Zoom. I mean, why why this dude had to have a private marriage? I mean, if he really believes this is who God has is set aside for me, this is supposed to be my wife, uh, one flesh um, <clears throat> for the rest of our lives, or you know, as long as both of us shall live. Why would it need to be secret? Like why you you couldn't have a normal wedding like normal people, but he has a secret wedding, for some unknown reason, consummates this relationship, you know, has sex with this 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 young lady, um, who he is now married to, I would argue by by any sort of scriptural standard, and then refuses to actually get the marriage license, that would keep her in the country, forcing her back to South Africa, at which point he pretends like she doesn't even exist. I mean, just an abject level of wickedness for somebody that sits there and, and picks apart what he thinks are the sins of others. Now, again, I mean, people accuse us of that. People say, well, you're protesting. That's all you do. That's all you do is pick on people's sins. And no, that's really not what we do. You know, we, we, we pick on people's bad doctrine. We, pe- pick, we pick on the things that people teach that, um, if believed, lead people to hell. Your sin actually will not wind you up in hell if you were a believer you have faith and trust in jesus christ and he saved you um you're still going to sin because you bear the flesh and that sin is not going to condemn you to hell and yet there are things that if you believe if you hold them to be true if you place your faith there um you will go to hell there this this isn't this shouldn't be that complicated to understand and yet it is all the time people have a really hard time and this has always been the case of differentiating between law and gospel. And the law being your inability to not sin. Um, and, and then, you, of course, where you place your faith, which would determine um, um, whether you were actually saved, whether you actually regenerated or not. That those, those are, there, there is a relationship there, but that they're not the same thing. Instead, we worry about, well, such and such minister over there committed a sin that we found out about. Um, so not only would we argue, hey, maybe they shouldn't be in ministry or in ministry right now, 
Um, but beyond that, anybody that ever talked to them, anybody that ever said hi, you know, anybody that was ever at a conference with them or um, supported them in any way, offered them a kind word in any way, is probably just as guilty as they are. This is this is what I call cooties discernment. They you touch that guy and and that guy touched that guy and that you know that guy showed up with that guy or whatever and therefore you're all you know one guy over here is 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 I'm arguing is a heretic therefore you're all heretics you're all heretics or or you all have no discernment as if now discernment is all of a sudden defined as mind reading as as being able to tell what's in someone's heart or somehow predict the future. Um, that's not what it is. A discerning Christian can say such and such minister over here was teaching correct things, and yet I, you know, he sinned over here, and so these, this should be the consequence or whatever. And um, I probably won't be um, availing myself of his teaching for for a little while, or or perhaps, you know, forever now, depending on the na- depending on the nature of the sin. And that doesn't invalidate that he taught something correct back here that I agreed with. The fact that I agreed with him on this does not mean I endorse every single thing that uh, results from his flesh nature. And, and yet people are constantly, um, because of cancel culture, because we live in, a, in a, an economy of, of influence and an economy of impression, um, they're more than willing to, to blur those lines. They can't help but blur those lines. Because what they're what they're going, they're what they're going for is not being faithful before the Lord. What they're what they're going for is how do I look in front of everybody else, and and they excuse it, they excuse that kind of a stance by saying, well, if everybody, if people don't respect me, I mean, you know, how will people hear what I have to say? How will how will I be able to minister to people if if they don't respect me? And and of course, forgetting that ministry is first and foremost an act of worship for the Lord. And you cannot worship the Lord by um, being disingenuous or false or manipulative or things. You just preach the truth. You tell the truth. And let the chips fall where they may. There are plenty of preachers out there that have told the truth, preached the truth, and been hated on by their audiences. This happened all the time in the New Testament. Where, you know, Paul would preach that sermon. Even Jesus would would preach something and, and... Half the crowd, if not most of the crowd, gets up and leaves. They're, they don't tolerate the message. And now imagine if he was a, a modern, a modern um, preacher or you know one of these tr- like church growth adherents, and sees this happen. The first thing he would do was, hey, we need to have a focus group, guys. We need to, we all, all need to get together and figure out why this vision isn't working. I mean, we said something and a bunch of people left, so. Um, we need to change what we need to change what we're saying, or maybe is there a more winsome way we can put this that would stop everybody from leaving? Um, and of course, then they neuter the you know, assuming that they were ever preaching a real gospel, they've neutered its power, right? They've 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 now decided that that what we're going to preach is first and foremost for pleasing people. You know, we're we're going to please people because if we please people, then they might listen to us on the gospel, and therefore people will come to Christ. And you know, they, they capitulate and they compromise. Instead, they should be saying, "We're going to preach the gospel with patience, with love, but with certainty, knowing that people will hate what we're saying, knowing that the message of the gospel is foolishness to unbelievers." And and you know. So many are unwilling to do that, but certainly in the case of um, internet back and forths and whatnot, it gets it gets even worse because now, including all of these vocational ministers that theoretically have some skin in the game, 
you know, they've, they've, they they believe that this is what they've been called to do vocationally. This is their job. It's going to be who who they become identified as. You're a pastor of such and such church. Now you also have this this gaggle of and you might throw me in this mix. I don't know this gaggle of parachurch uh, ministers or those that that are led or believe they're led to be commentating and um, putting out you know their teaching or their beliefs or their understandings, their opinions of things. Um, with very little skin in the game, potentially. The, so the, the skin in the game for some of these folks, and, and again, I'm, you know, I might be able to lump myself in there, I suppose. Um, the skin in the game for them is, is influence. What do people think about me? Are people complimenting me? Are people, are people um, you know, repost, reposting my stuff? Are they, are they leaving comments like, I really appreciate what you've done, and, and it's such a blessing to me. You know, things that make me feel good. You know, their their currency is not money necessarily. It's influence. It's good feelings. It's good vibes. Um, it's it's you know their narcissism in some cases. Um, and I'm trying very hard to to make sure I don't get wrapped up in something like that. And I think that the 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 way that um, I should be doing it or I have been able to do it so far is to just say the platform is not mine. You know, if if. I say something and you all get upset and you all say, I'm not listening to that guy anymore. You know, I'm done. I'm, I won't interact with him, blah, blah, blah. Okay, oh, fine. If, if what I said is true um, before the Lord and God says um, this platform doesn't need to be here anymore, that great, that's, that's, that's his will. And if he says you'll have some sort of big platform, um, then I'll be praying for the humility to... To, to do that going forward. And, and I do know this, God's, God's will will go forward with or without me. His truth will go forward with or without me. Um, but between myself and the Lord, my obedience has to be um, that when, when uh, he, he puts uh, you know, something on my heart or I'm convinced that the Spirit is leading me to, to a certain direction, um, that I need to obey no matter the consequences, no matter what I think other people are going to think about it, if there's a big platform or not, if, if so-and-so, someone, someone's getting the credit or not, who, who cares about that? You know, life could be over in an, in an instant, this life, you know, and I don't want to be, I don't want to be halfway through worrying, you know, doing something, worrying about my reputation or what people think about me or, or this and that and the other. And then, and then the next second I'm standing before Jesus, it's not willing to do it. I want it to be, I was obeying you, at that last moment, I was I was um, obeying you up until that last moment, and like I said, we'll let the chips fall where they may. Um, anyway, so but back to this back to this idea of the, these these theological camps and what's going on, um, and I think that this this topic may move into a into the next episode as well. But I'll just I'll call it when I call it, and then we'll we'll pick it up in the next one. But one of the one of the trends, these macro trends that, of course, most of us are very uh, acutely aware of, is this idea of abuse in the church. Uh, you know, abuse generally. Um, you know, Me Too movement. Um, but entering the church, some of us call it the Church Two movement. I've seen people using hashtag SBC Two T O O whatnot, those kind of things. Um, and it's this idea that that or it's, it's it's this movement that basically um i would argue is underpinned its puppet master so to speak is um ministerial egalitarianism 
a sort of um, erasure of biblical gender um, distinctions. You know, ontological ontological uh, distinctions aside, it's it's about erasing um, any sort of actual, natural, created, purposeful differences between um, men and women, and especially in terms of their roles uh, in the home and in the church and whatnot. That's the doctrine that underpins. That's the doctrine that um, um, is behind the the church two kind of movement, and. One of the ways that this is very obvious is you will see um, abuse survivor advocates very often um, sort of generalizing their criticisms in a way that would leave you with the impression that all churches are bad, all churches don't work. Um, church as conducted or, or as constituted by um, what I would argue are New Testament um, guidelines is, is inherently wrong, is systematically wrong. So the same way that, the same way that um, somebody pushing for social justice or racial reconciliation would argue, hey, the American system is inherently racist. It's inherently racist. It's by its foundation or, or in its bones it's racist to the point where even if you're trying to overtly not be racist, you will wind up being racist anyway or benefiting from racism because it's just built in. It's systemic. Um, abuse survivor advocates argue the same thing about the church. They argue basically the church is systemically abusive. And when we start asking the next question, well, what would make a church systemically abusive? Well, they have the answer right there for you. The, the answer is the church is systemically abusive because um, it insists on male leadership. It insists on male pastors and not female pastors. Um, it insists on male spiritual leadership within the home and, and the marriage and um, if they would only realize that women um, have every every ability to do those jobs as well and be, and, and be in those roles, um, it wouldn't be abusive. It wouldn't be. It's systemically abusive because it's it's because of the flaw of patriarchy, the flaw of male leadership, and it doesn't matter to these women. First of all, they don't like to have that conversation directly. And the reason they don't want to have it directly is because all you got to do is quote the word of God. And if, they, if they're honest, if you do that and they're honest, they have to admit, I don't believe that the Bible says what it says. I don't believe, or I don't believe that when the Bible says that, that somehow we were actually obligated to believe it or follow it. They don't really want to have that conversation because they generally have um, following and support across the, across the, uh, conservative, liberal, theological spectrum. Um, it's, it's a bit of a Trojan horse. And so they will, they, they will stand back and say, hey, we're, abuse, we're, we're exposing abuse in the church. Um, that's, that's our purpose here. And very often, I mean, yeah, I mean, there are sinners that, that are vocational ministers, so we're never going to run short of um, so-and-so in a position of authority or leadership sinned here and, and, and this sin was actually an abusive sin, whether it was sexually abusive or, or spiritually abusive. Like, nobody's denying that that exists. Nobody's denying that that should be handled. Um, but the next, the next step in these movements is, hey, abuse exists over here. Um, the next step is for them to blame somebody. They, and they're not, they're not content with blaming the abuser, the person that actually sinned. Um, they, have to, they have to go one step deeper and, and not... 
not even, and I find this very ironic, but they, they don't even blame him directly. They blame the system. They blame um, the church. They, they blame the um, application of what the Bible teaches about gender roles. They blame that for the individual sin of the sinner. And here's, here's the ironic part. They're actually letting, as much as they say, we're, we're uh, exposing this abuser, we're against this guy for abusing and against this guy for doing what he did, they let him off the hook. They let him off the hook. They, they're basically, in effect, saying that this pastor over here that, that committed this sin, that abused in this way, that manipulated this person, that whatever it was, they, they did these sinful things, um, those sinful things are a result of uh, a patriarchal church structure, a patriarchal church design. What and what they're effect, effectively saying is it's not really his fault, you know. It's the Bible's fault. It's it's the church's fault. It's um, these teachings um, over here are to blame, you know, because they don't just say that guy needs to be removed, that guy needs to be disciplined, he needs to have consequences for this. They say everybody has to have consequences for this. So in one person's, and this, this is the, the pernicious, collectivist, Marxist nature of the abuse, um, you know, advocacy uh, movement, as it were, is, again, they are not individualizing sin. They're not saying, in, in the way that Christ will, you know, one day, say, you are responsible for your sin, you're responsible for, um, for your response um, to God's revelation, um, Instead of that, they're saying we're all collectively responsible for something, or you know, so and so sin over here indicates every this whole movement is is corrupt and sinful, and it's ironic because you know they're they're not really against the abuser; they're against the church; they're against the system. And um, like I said, we're going to get into more of this on the next episode. Um, dealing with right now and 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 I hesitate just because I never know who's going to be listening to this to get too specific specific about details lest anybody figure out the people I'm talking about for sure so so as I get into this next um topic I'm not going to be naming names I'm going to try to be as nondescript as possible knowing that it's that that somebody listening might put two and two together and then and at that point I'm praying that uh, that I've said true things or analyze this correctly so that even if that becomes an issue I can stand before the Lord and say yeah but I you know I told the truth I told the truth and did my best to to try to protect people's privacy um but in the in the next episode of the bully pew podcast um which again for as a reminder is supposed to be me talking about uh pew sitting males and our interaction with church and Christendom and and how to be obedient to the Lord <laughs> Our, the next episode of the Bully Pew Podcast is going to be discussing um, the very real, uh, the very real issue of men being abused in marriage, men being abused uh, in their relationships, and the difficulty that that presents, considering um, the the hypocritical and double standard uh, way that society in general approaches approaches men. Um, as it simultaneously um, holds us to a standard of being truly masculine and yet at the same time keeps us always vulnerable to being wrong and in the wrong for being masculine and having to walk that tightrope of uh, the societal expectation 
of men being men and yet the modern feminist expectation of men you know being men sort of in secret or some other version of it or being men within you know men who are subjugated to the whims of the feminized society in which we live so we'll discuss that on the next episode thank you so much for listening to this first episode of the bully pew podcast i'm your host david morrill check out protestia.com for all the latest news um and make sure you subscribe to this podcast and and other ones that i may uh, come along and recommend go over to youtube and subscribe to uh protestia tonight while you're at it and a few more subscribers uh, over there but anyway thank you so much god bless i'll talk to you next time